Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently, so that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country and they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like, some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. Big Sam left Seattle in the year of 92. With George Pratt, his partner, and brother Billy, too. They crossed the Yukon River and found the Bonanza Gold. Below that old white mountain, just a little southeast of Nome. Sam crossed the majestic mountains to the valleys far below. He talked to his team of huskies as he mushed on through the snow. With the northern lights a-running wild in the land of the midnight sun. Yes, Sam McCord was a mighty man in the year of 1901. Where the river is winding, big nuggets they're finding. North to Alaska. I've talked before about the guy that lives up the hill from me. And how he fits the bill of the stereotypical gringo expat who has left the U.S., come to a foreign country and search for booze and love. And this poor guy has definitely found the booze part. He is probably in his mid-50s, maybe late 40s. And he goes to the bar every day and gets hammered. He also tries to run some sailboat tours, but I don't think he's too successful with that. But this is the guy that I've mentioned before that I've found his vehicle stranded four times now without his presence. And so it it just gets funnier and funnier. The other day, it rained a bunch. And the hill that goes up to his house, which the road is right past my house, was extremely wet and muddy and slippery. And the mud here is the kind of mud that when it gets wet, it gets real slick. But it, and it dries out really quick. So I hear this engine revving. I look down the hill and I see this little red, old, old Land Cruiser coming around the corner, wide open, just trying to make it. And he hit the hill and he made it up about 15 feet and it just stalled. So he pushed in the clutch and he rolled backwards. He went back a little farther, put it in reverse, and got a running start as fast as he could get. It came around this corner and then once again made it about halfway up the hill and goes back. He did this a total of about eight times. And each time, Ronnie and I were just laughing harder and harder. He he couldn't see where we were standing. We were kind of 
off the side of my porch, kind of behind some trees, but we were looking straight down at him. And I guess he couldn't figure out that no matter how far back of a running start he got, he had to make this 90-degree turn before he could go up the hill. And so, obviously, you can only gain enough speed and still be going safely to go through the turn and go up the hill. And I don't know how he didn't blow the motor up in this thing because he had it pegged out to the red line, approaching the turn, hits his brakes to go through the turn, and then revs it up and just pops the clutch and tries to scream up the hill, and he just could not do it. So about after four or five tries, me and Ronnie are laughing so hard we can't see, Ismail comes riding up behind him on his motorcycle because where this spot is is not too far from Ismail's house. So he comes riding up behind the guy on his motorcycle, and he sees me and Ronnie looking down the hill at him. And so he's kind of laughing and pointing. And Ronnie, in all of his humor or wisdom, looks down at Ismail, and he's telling him, he's like, get out and push. He's like, get out and push him up that hill. And Ismail just sits there just shakes his head. And it's just another example of Ronnie trying to bust Ismail's balls. It's nonstop, I tell you. Well, come to find out, Ismail wouldn't help him because there something went bad between this drunk gringo expat and Ismail's uncle. Ismail's uncle has a business at the bottom of the hill. He's got four or five wells, and he pumps water out of his wells, puts them in tanks, and then goes and sells the water to houses that are higher up the hill. So that's his business. So I suspect it had something to do with that. But every Nicaraguan that knows this guy knows he's bad news, and they all have some shady deal that went down that's tainted him in their eyes. So it's funny, every time I come across someone that knows him, I try to get them to tell me about him, acting like they've never met the guy, don't know anything about him, and they always have a story. So anyway, so he ends up leaving his vehicle, once again, on the side of the road and walking up the hill, and I heard the dogs barking, and I saw him walking up the hill. I said, oh, man, he's trying to come in the gate. He wants to talk to me and get me to help him go pull him up the hill, but that wasn't what he wanted. He just was letting me know that his car was in the middle of the road and that if I couldn't get by, to go get him. And I just happened to be leaving for the airport at 3 o'clock that morning, the coming morning. And so I said, man, I really need you to make sure that car's out of the road. I said, it runs, right? And he's like, yeah. So well, then why would you leave it blocking the road? So his reply to that was, well, I think you can probably get by. And I said, okay, here's the deal. If it's blocking the road at 3 o'clock in the morning and I can't get by, I was like, I'm going to move it. I said, I'll attach a toe strap to it and just move it so I can get by. He said, well, maybe I'll walk down a little bit later on this evening and check and see if it's dried up enough. Well, sure enough, I don't know, about three or four hours later, I hear him crank it and just full throttle blaze it up the hill, and he made it. So probably best for both of us that he ended up getting it out of the road. I just got back from the States. I spent like three or four days in Seattle and then two, a little over two, two and a half weeks in Alaska. And I know that I always come back from the States and talk about things that I miss. But one thing that I miss is all the good food. And it's probably a good thing that I'm not around all the good food all the time. Because then it would make it easier to eat. And then I would appreciate it less. But man, there is so much good food out there. Every restaurant you go to, as long as you pick wisely, it's got good food. And so it was awesome to be like, where all can we eat? in such a short amount of time. And then so how it goes is that you eat a ton of good food for like a week straight, and then you're like, man, I can't wait to 
start eating some salads tomorrow and then tomorrow rolls around and you're like, oh, here's pancakes for breakfast. And then you finish breakfast at 9.30 and then it's time to eat lunch at 12.30. Then you finish lunch at 1.30 and then you start cooking dinner at 3.30 and then you eat dinner at 6. And it's like all you've been doing all day is either cooking, eating, or cleaning up. So I do miss the good food, but I'll have to admit it was nice to get back here and get back on the chicken and vegetable dinner routine. Not so much because I'm like, oh, look, I'm healthy, but more along the lines of I can cook dinner on a grill and have like three or four things to eat and just dirty one plate and then just kind of rinse it off and put it back with the rest of the plates. Because doing dishes here isn't fun because it's always hot in the kitchen. There's no hot water, so you like you got something that's got oil in it well, what I do when I have something that's got oil in it is clean out all the you know, big pieces of stuff that was in the pan and then just sit on the floor and let the dogs lick like all of the... Like if I cook bacon, I take the pan and stick it on the ground and then let the dogs clean up all the bacon grease and then I just wash it and with some soap. But otherwise, it takes forever because you have trying to clean oil with cold water. It just sucks. It's not fun. Another thing that I miss from the States is a nice gym. I was in Anchorage... And I went to find a gym to go work out. And I found this place that was like, compared to where I work out now here in Nicaragua, it was like heaven on earth. Like completely air-conditioned, big bright lights everywhere. Thousands of machines, thousands of treadmills, clean towels everywhere, cold water fountains. I'd forgotten the, the pleasures of a nice gym. Steam room, sauna. And then I get back to San Juan and I go to the hot box. I'm going to take a thermometer with me when I go work out this morning, and I'm going to report back on how hot it was. My guess is like between 91 and 95 in there. It was so hot the other day that like if you had a chair that had been sitting in the sun, and you know the sun kind of warms up, and you sit down, and you feel it kind of warm on your butt. That's what it felt like inside the gym on a bench to work out on. And it, there was no sun, I guarantee you that. I don't think much sun gets into that building with no windows or wind, which is why it's like mid-90s in there. But it's all part of it. You sweat more. I guess that's good. I'd rather be in the air conditioning, but I'm trying to find the positive sides of it. It looks like a prison gym, but it does the job, and it's super cheap. But I do miss a big, nice, cool gym. I've got a pig update. I got back from being gone for... Almost four weeks. I walk over the next morning and look at the pigs. And they look like Ethiopian pigs. They're extremely skinny. So I go to Ronnie. I was like, man, what's the deal? The pigs are skinny. And then I realized that there was a big communication breakdown. Ronnie thought that because I was explaining to him about how much we were spending on pig food, that I was disappointed or upset or mad about the pig food bill. So (laughs) he... He cut their food way back or, you know, didn't increase it as they were growing. And the mangoes started falling, so he's been giving them mangoes. And they also tear the leaves off these banana trees, the, the kind that don't really produce fruit, but they look just like a banana tree. And he rips the leaves off these things and feeds them to them, and they, and they gobble it up. So I get back, so all of the banana trees hardly have any leaves left. There's not a mango one on the ground, and these pigs are starving. <laughs> so I told him, I said, Ronnie, here's the new deal. 
Just feed these pigs as much as they can possibly eat. That was two days ago, and I can't tell if they've gained any weight yet, but surely they've got to because we're blazing through the food now. At this point, let's just finish the pigs and eat them. We don't have to make money on it. I may be giving up on the business part of it. But we'll see how it goes. If it works out good at the end, great. But if not, I'd rather spend a little bit of extra money and have some good pork. But if slaughter day was tomorrow, there's some little drawn-up skinny pigs. I'm thinking about starting a section on my blog about places to eat and places not to eat. Mainly because I, th- I think it would be funny to describe how terrible a meal was at a restaurant. Without being like trip advisory, like being able to laugh at it, I think would be funny to talk about how bad it is and not have the need to like convey your message or get the message across. And the reason that the thing that made me think about this was the day after I got back, Zach and I went and had lunch at this place called Iguanas Bar. And Zach always gets like the uh, chicken and rice bowl. So it's what I thought was like fried rice and little pieces of chopped up chicken, you know, in a bowl. So I ordered the same thing that he got. And I said, well, he always gets it. I've had it once or twice, but it was a long time ago, and I don't remember hating it, so I'll get it. So we get it. It comes out. I take one bite. Well, first of all, I saw the rice kind of had like a little red tint to it, and I thought, oh, no, this is going to be sugar ketchup rice. Sure enough, first bite, sugar ketchup infused rice. And the place is owned by a gringo. I do not understand why he thinks it's acceptable to put ketchup in a rice dish i'm telling you they put it on everything i I would not be surprised if i saw someone putting sugar ketchup on their ice cream it just blows my mind so i choked it down because i was hungry but never again will i go back there and order sugar ketchup rice and the funny thing is we we were the only people in the restaurant i'm not exaggerating you know saying that there was only a couple other people there and we would say oh we're the only ones like we were the only customers in the restaurant. And it took us, we sat down, it took five or ten minutes before anyone came over to us. Zach ordered a bottled water, and I ordered fresh watermelon juice. So the guy leaves, didn't take our food order. We finally, after waiting for our drinks for like ten minutes, we call him over and ask if we can go ahead and order our food. So without even mentioning the drinks, we order our food, and he didn't mention them either. So I'm thinking... Surely he did not forget the drinks of the one table in this entire restaurant. Well, about another 10 minutes later, it goes by, and here he comes with the watermelon juice and the water. And I, I wondered why he wouldn't just bring out the water, because obviously they had to throw the water. They probably had to go buy the watermelon, then cut it up, then put it in the juicer, and then serve it. And so I was just thinking, I wonder why they don't serve the water bottle first. And then I was like, you know what? Probably because they've gotten yelled at for bringing out a table's food at two or three different times. And so they're like, man, these crazy gringos, like they get mad if the drinks don't come, but they, you can bring the drinks together, but you can't separate their food because then they get mad. So I'm wondering if that was the case, if he was just trying to play by the food rules with the drinks, because I, I do see how it could be confusing. But at the same time, if it's going to take 20 minutes to make watermelon juice, like tell the customer that and let them decide if they want to wait. And then it took 45 minutes to get our food. And I was just, the whole time I was saying, I just want to go up there and see what they're doing. I want to see what is taking so long. Are they like, I mean, it was rice, sugar ketchup, chicken, 
and some olives. I know, olives are super weird. But that's what it was. Like three ingredients. And I just wanted to know what could possibly be taking so long. It, it never fails to blow my mind. And, and I'm not complaining, really. I mean, I, can't, I am a little bit because I would rather it be faster. But I know that that's how things go here. But what, what blows my mind is, is just what can they be doing to be so inefficient to take two or three times the amount per meal that one would expect it to take. And that's what's fascinating to me. They've got to just get the order and just sit around for a while. I don't know how else you can take 45 minutes to make rice, chicken, and sugar ketchup. It's easy. I'll tell you what's not easy is dealing with these, air quote, lawyers down here sometimes. I've mentioned before that we're in the process of applying for a business classification down here called the 306 classification. And what that does is gives tax incentives and import tax breaks to companies that operate in the realm of tourism. And so we're going on three years now of trying to get this stuff organized. And I now officially blame this Yahoo that calls himself a lawyer because he sent us this gigantic list. I'm talking about pages and pages of single space bullet points of things that we need. And it's gotten to the point where I don't know what it is that he needs. And so I can't get it to him. And he is like refusing to tell me what it is. And so he's got me. He's successfully done the crappy lawyer scam on me. And how that works is they get you signed up. They get you fired up. They give you a bunch of good correspondence. And then they sit back for a while. And they let you steam up and get kind of mad and frustrated with the lack of progress. And then right when you're about to pull the plug and fire them and start over, They'll come to you and say, now, you know, I have a friend that can help you out. Because normally what it is is that they give you this big, long laundry list of stuff. And then they just kind of want to turn you loose. And then you bring it back to them. And then they'll finish the paperwork, submit it, present it, whatever they have to do to whoever. So they're above gathering the things that you need. Even You can't even pay them to do it. They won't do it. But they always have a friend that will do it. So the point where I am now with this guy was I was about to fire him the other day. I sent him this email and I said, look, here's a deal. I'm taking over this 306 deal. Tell me what I need. Tell me what you have. And he writes back in Spanish. It's like, see the list, see the list that I sent over on July 10th or something. And I go back and I look at July 10th. And that's the exact same list that he sent over like February of 2013. And I know for a fact that we've sent him probably 30 or 40 of the 400 documents that he needs to do this thing. And so I said, hey, where's the stuff that we've already sent? He's like, well, it was so unorganized, I didn't, I didn't keep up with it. You guys need to submit everything at one time. And I said, okay, we're done. Like, I can't, I can't work this way. I'm going to have to find someone else. I don't care how much money I've paid you. He said, well, you know that I, I have some people that can prepare these documents for you. And I'm thinking, of course you do. Of course you do. And why you didn't tell me this three years ago, I do not understand. But here we are. And so I said, okay, give me their information. I'll call them and see if they can do it. Think he did that? Oh, no, no, no. He'll call them and get the information and get back to me. That way he can mark it up a little bit or get a kickback from them. At this point, I'm willing to let them do it depending on the price. Because if we can get that sorted out before we order these little Hobie cats, it'll save some money in importation tax. So it'll be interesting to see 
what this guy comes back with. Normally, it's around $300 per person when they have to do this sort of thing. And it's just like, you know, he'll know one guy that's in the finance ministry department. So he knows exactly what the financial paperwork needs to look like. And then he's got some other guy that he knows that works in some other department. So he'll let him, you know, organize all the bank information or whatever. So in this whole project, there's different sections. Some of it's like economic forecasting. Some of it's finance. Some of it's how are you going to manage your business? And so he has people that do all these little jobs that probably have connections in the tourism board. And so what I suspect is I'll pay them. They pay their little boss a little bit, and then the little bosses know that when this report comes through, everything will be fine with it. So as much as it sucks to know that I'm contributing to the corruption, I don't care that much. Just get this headache out of my head. It's been there for three years. Because in the meantime, while this is still getting sorted out, the boat has to go to Costa Rica every 60 days to check out of the country and check back in the country. It's a total sham. But they end up winning every single time. Anyone that knows me knows that Bentley and Bronco, my two dogs, are a little bit leaner than most dogs most of the time. So I try to keep them real thin. You know, no ribs showing, but just, just before that. Just so it's better in their joints and they, they're just better, happier dogs, healthier when they're lean. They're very sensitive to weight gain and weight loss. You can adjust their food just a tiny bit and see a difference within a couple of days. So typically when I go out of town, I come back and the dogs are a little chunky because I haven't been feeding them because there's like a, just a fine little threshold of where the food needs to be in the cup to make them stay right where they are. And I'll sometimes I'll notice like, oh, one of them's getting a little bit thin or a little bit big and I'll adjust it just with my own eyes. But when I get back from out of town, they're always chunky and I don't know why it is. It's, it's either they don't get the exercise or they're eating too much food. And I thought maybe a little bit of both. Uh, Zach kept them most of the time while I was gone. But for about the last five days, I think he came and just dropped them off and let Ronnie and Felipe watch the dogs. And when I pulled up from the airport the other night, I hopped out, and sure enough, they were little sausages. Fat, fat, fat dogs. So I was like, oh, well, now they got to go in the program. So I walked through the door, put my bags down, look, and there's a bowl on the ground, just one bowl right next to the water bowl that's full of food. And then I was like, oh, no. And I went and looked in the pantry, and I took a look over at the dog food bag, and there was a lot less in it than there should have been. Because I know about how long a dog food bag lasts, and I know what I scooped out to take to Zach's. And then I knew what I about should have had left, and there was way less than what I expected. And so I look, and the dogs just walk up, take a couple bites of food, and walk away. And that's not how I feed my dogs. Normally, they get fed in the morning, in the evening, and they just scarf their food down. But Felipe took it upon himself to put him on the Nicaragua dog food program, where it's it doesn't matter how many dogs you have, you have one food bowl. And they just take turns, and they share, and they just eat till they're not hungry anymore. And <laughs> I haven't addressed it with him yet, but I gave him specific instructions on how to feed them and Ronnie too and so I have to say that Ronnie probably was part of the deal I haven't confronted him because I don't want to hurt their feelings but next time I'm going to have to give them specific instructions or what I may do is measure out the food for every single day for each dog 
and put it in a little Ziploc baggie and write the days of the week on the baggie. And <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I wouldn't be surprised if they just dump all the baggies into one bowl and set it down. But it was obvious to me why the dogs had gained weight because they were on a freaking dog food buffet for at least the last five days. And I suspect their food wasn't administered with a strict regime at Zach's house either. Simply because Zach doesn't operate on anything that resembles strict or regime. <laughs> the last thing I'm going to talk about today doesn't have anything to do with Nicaragua or sailboats or Central America or Ronnie or pigs or anything. And this is mainly directed towards those of you out there that have grown kids who don't live next door to you. At some point in a kid's life, the parent puts all the responsibility of reaching out for communication onto the child. And I don't understand this. And this is all coming from a couple of personal experiences that I've had recently. But at some point, the parents enter this mode of, quote, not wanting to bother their child, end quote. And to me, it's a lousy reason or excuse to not call someone. Instead, they just get a little bit fussy that they haven't been called lately. And it almost seems to me the act of calling is more important than the act of talking or conversing with your son or daughter. And those of you kids who are grown will know what I'm talking about. You'll either have the following conversation via text message or phone. It'll go something like this. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm fine. I was just wondering why you hadn't called me. Uh, I don't know. Why hadn't you called me? Well, it's just that you said um, you were going to call when you get back and you didn't call. Okay, well, did you want to talk to me? Yeah. Okay, then how come you didn't call me? Because I don't want to bother you. And in today's age, a missed phone call is not bothering someone. And I think we're all accustomed to that if someone calls us and we're busy, we typically don't answer because it's easier to not answer than it is to answer and be bothered while you're trying to talk to somebody. So we're pretty, pretty accustomed to people not answering their phones. And in my specific case, if I get a phone call from someone and I see that I have a missed phone call, I'll be much more likely to call them back than I would if I just sit around and wait. Because I typically don't talk on the phone that much to people. It's not something that I particularly like doing. I do it with my friends to catch up and with my parents, but... I don't sit around and think about who I need to call every day. So please take that advice to heart. All you parents who might get a little bit feeling hurted that your kids don't call you, and you don't call them because you don't want to bother them, it's not really acceptable. Call them too if you want to talk to them. And it's okay to be the one that calls them every single time. If you're calling them too much, they'll let you know. Okay, that's enough for the rant. Thanks again for listening Life in Paradise podcast. Check out our website, nikasaleandsurf.com. Thanks for listening. Keep it tranquilo. There are few things pure in this world anymore. And home is one of the few. We'd have a drink outside, maybe. Running out if we saw a couple men in blue. But to me, it's so damn easy to see that you're
people are the people at home Well I've been away but now I'm back today And there ain't a place I'd rather go I feel home when I see the faces that remember my own I feel home when I'm chilling outside with the people I know I feel home and that's just what I feel 